And I, so I would say Michael F. Shine, head hype artist, the man who always looks for side doors. Imagine if you're walking through the forest and everything turns yellow and orange just really quickly, like in one second. That's a fire usually, right? But if things turn yellow and orange really, really slowly over time, that's autumn, that's fall. So in nature, sudden change usually indicates danger and gradual change usually does not. So as a result, we get very, we literally have chemicals like cortisol that surge in our body when someone tries to introduce us to a new idea very quickly. And the same idea when introduced slowly, we don't notice at all. So, you know, if you don't have the lights and the color and the sound, think about tension and release, think about drama, right? I mean, um, the, the protagonist in the story shouldn't be you or your product, it should be them. What I tell clients is write down the, all of those things that you're the most insecure about that you think are your worst traits and then find a way to reframe it as, your, as something really cool. And usually that's the most unique stuff about you. What's your greatest joy, Michael? This is really cheesy and typical, but I have a daughter. I have a almost 12 year old daughter. I would have to say, think her. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Subscribe to my channel for conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the branding, marketing, and the business world. Conversations that ignite new ideas, ideas with rough and sharp edges. Hello, Michael. So nice to have you on my show. Jasravi, how are you? It's great to be here. <laughs> okay. So, Michael, if I requested you to tweet your profile, what would you say? You know, I used to call myself the president of my company, Microfame Media, and I was thinking that that didn't really fit at all what I do or what we do. So now I call myself the head hype artist. And I, so I would say Michael F. Shine, head hype artist, the man who always looks for side doors. Awesome. The head hype artist, and that gives us uh, the opportunity to build the right context for, for our audiences about hype. So let's start there, uh, Michael, because, uh, you know, I've been in branding and still I would say I have zero context for hype. And uh, in common language also, we, we are so dismissive of it, you know, oh, it's just hype or oh, they've just hyped it up, you know, so what you bring forth is a completely different uh, you know, perspective. And after so much research of our entire history of us as humans. So please tell us what is hype, what it is not. Well, I, I think it's very fair as a branding person to not know much about hype or to not have a positive view of it. Because I, I've really, with the book I wrote and... Um, the work I do, I've really tried to take the word back because it is usually seen as a negative word. Uh, uh, you know, typically people will say, oh, it's all hype, as you said. Um, there, there's been a couple of communities, however, where that isn't the case. So for one, in the hip hop world, people talk about hype as a positive thing, right? People will say, I hyped that up. I hyped up that show. I hyped up that record. And, and it means something positive. But what I found extremely interesting is in the tech world. So among funded tech startups, and when I say funded, I don't mean bootstrapped. I mean, people who raise 10, 20, 30 million dollars. So they have a 
product that at least has some potential, right? They usually have a team, they have a good business plan and that sort of thing. The word hype is used a lot and it's usually used like this. People will say things like, if only I could hype up my product, if only I could hype up my company, I would have a hundred million dollar valuation instead of a $10 million valuation. And I think what they're saying is, you look at companies like Uber and WeWork who had very charismatic, often not very nice founders, but they were very good. And I don't know what nice means, but they have bad reputations in a lot of ways, but they're very good at drumming up a lot of attention around their stuff. And I think what a lot of these tech entrepreneurs are saying is our products might have even more legs than something like WeWork, but we don't know how to generate that same amount of hype. And that's what makes all the difference. So the way I've decided to define hype is very neutral. It's, it's neither positive nor negative. It's any activities that generate a large amount of emotion among a large that generate emotion among a large number of people to to get you to a certain place to get a certain reaction right so or or deliver a certain outcome and that outcome can be horrible it can mean a cult leader trying to get a bunch of people to do awful things but it can be wonderful it can be martin luther king using the media to get across a very important message that wasn't touching people emotionally before. But the mass psychology that makes that kind of mass emotion happen just is. People respond how they respond, and it's usually not very logical. And so you can either reject that or you can accept it and figure out how to apply it ethically. And I teach people how to do the latter. So, so lovely uh, explanation. And as you're talking about it, I'm thinking uh, from cult, I'm thinking communities, I'm thinking religions, you know, uh, from the from the moment how we've evolved as a species, you know, whenever we've come together uh, as, as a tribe or as a group, uh, this has worked uh, like you have talked. But most so strongly in religions as well, because branding kind of borrows in a big way from uh, religions as well. You know, yeah. build a myth, have a symbol, rituals, etc. Absolutely. So, so this this thing that you're talking about, you know, uh, in masses, how we respond to something. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about it? As in, as humans, why are we so susceptible to it? Why is this such a big need, I would say? It's really important to keep in mind that human beings are not evolved to see the world accurately or to perceive the world accurately. So the, the way that we have evolved over millions of years is to survive, you know, to, to live while our competitors may not. And more importantly, or just as importantly, to spread our genes, right? So so if we're able to survive in a competitive situation, especially in the past when things were much more dangerous, and then survive long enough to find a mate and, and spread our genes and spread those tendencies to the next generation, uh, those tendencies survive. It's also important to keep in mind that human beings are probably, if not the most social animal on earth, the most social mammal. So 
despite what people who are individualists like to say, and individualism is very important, but we can't survive without other people. People go insane without other people. Society doesn't happen without other people. Babies cannot live up until like the age of seven without other people, right? So that's the other thing. So we interact in groups and we perceive in groups. So the combination of that is that we don't necessarily see the world accurately. We see the world in a way that gets us to accomplish those things and gets us to work really well in groups. So for example, um, I have a strategy. So in the Hype Hand book, you know, the book that that I published and wrote, wrote and published, I have a, a hype strategy that I call give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. And what that means is if you try to give a human being if you try to shove your ideas down a person's throat, they'll they'll just reject it out of hand, a new idea. But if you slowly in droplets ease people into a new idea, it can be the craziest, most radical idea ever. And they won't even realize that that you're indoctrinating them into this idea. So why do why are we like that? We'll use this example. So imagine if you're walking through the forest and everything turns yellow and orange just really quickly, like in one second. That's a fire, usually right? But if things turn yellow and orange really, really slowly over time, that's autumn, that's fall. So in nature, sudden change usually indicates danger and gradual change usually does not. So as a result, we get very, we literally have chemicals like cortisol that surge in our body when someone tries to introduce us to a new idea very quickly and the same idea when introduced slowly, we don't notice at all. So that's one example. And, 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 and just, it's wired into us. So you have to decide, are you going to accept that reality or reject that reality? Because it is reality. Beautiful. And I'm thinking of the, uh, the, the leaders that you've talked about uh, and I'm keeping them in mind how they will indoctrinate you drop by drop. So, uh, you know, uh, you talked about your book, uh, Michael, the Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest, and, and here's the interesting part, <laughs> propagandists, self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary breakers. And, you know, and I'm reading this, and uh, instantly my thought, uh, the thought that came to my mind is, Elon Musk is doing something right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, pe people talk about this a lot, right? I mean, some would say that Elon Musk is a great inventor, uh, is a great business person. And, and that's probably true, at least in part. But, you know, um, he didn't create Tesla. He did not invent those cars you know, and, and, um, so that, and that's all fine. What he is though, is a really good hype artist, right? Anytime he has a new business or new invention, um, he generates a huge amount of attention around that in a lot of different ways that we can talk about. So it's not to say that Elon Musk isn't great at what he does, it's that he's really great at turning what he does into attention. And by turning it into attention, he turns that into dollars. And that is not always a bad thing. So Tesla is a great example. So what most people did about electric cars, most people who embraced electric cars were environmentalists. And that's great. But as a result, 
they had these these cars and it was like eat, eat your cod liver oil take your medicine it was like drive this really boring car like a leaf which is really ugly and really small and can't get very far and can't drive very fast but you got to buy that leaf because you're helping the environment and you know that only goes so far people don't want to drink their medicine people especially in the united states really like cars so what did Elon Musk do? He obviously cares about climate change, whatever you want to say about him. And so what he did was he created a really cool looking car and it goes really fast. And he charged $100,000 for it. Why? Because then the richest people and celebrities bought that car and it became a status symbol. So now you now they drop the price for certain models, but it's still expensive. And now you see people who instead of buying a BMW or a Mercedes, they buy a Tesla. They don't care about the environment at all. Now they'll have a lower level model and everyone's going to want to be like those people, right? So he has basically hyped his car, which helps the environment, arguably. He, he focused on the way people really act. We're really status driven instead of how they should act. They, well, they should care about the environment, but they don't. They care about status. So that's what my message is. It's you can either think about the way the world ought to be and not get very far, or you can think about the way the world is, which will really help you accomplish your high-minded goals if you have high-minded goals. Yeah, yeah. So beautiful. So aspiration, making it cool. And I want it today. And of course, I'm helping the environment in the future, but you've sure. created a need for today how I am by making it so aspirational and so cool. Right. Uh, so Michael, any other strategies you'd like to share that brands and marketing can learn from? Because, uh, you know, like, like we were talking in the beginning, you're hyping it, but you, are you really understanding that this is a strategy and it can be integral part of how you're going to approach marketing? It's a great question. I mean, I I um I often tell people that if they only read one chapter of the book, uh, because the book is not divided into chapters, it's divided into strategies. So there's 12 hype strategies that if you master these 12 strategies, you'll you'll be able to go pretty far at generating the type of attention that I'm talking about if you practice it. And and the first hype strategy, the first chapter is is called make war not love. And I often tell people if you don't learn any other chapter in the book, learn that, especially if you're running a brand. If it's not just about you personally, if it's a company with a brand, that's really effective. And in, in fact, when I work with clients, you know, we we um we basically work with idea-driven businesses, tech startups and uh, high-level consultants to help them generate this kind of attention and emotion around their own stuff so that they can either get a high valuation or more clients or or, or customers or whatever. And I always start with this strategy. And what I say to them is, think of a point of view in your industry that is very, very common, that's almost gospel, that you completely disagree with, that you would go on a soapbox to disagree with. And at the same time, think about a point of view in your industry that you are 100% confident is the case and that other people don't tend to agree with. And, and so I'll give you two brand examples, if that's okay, of how this works. So uh, Basecamp is a uh, 
you know, CRM system. So not a very exciting product. It's, it's, you know, it's basically how you track your workflows, like a project management kind of tool. And um, they had to compete with uh, Salesforce, which is really tough to do because Salesforce invented a new industry. They invented cloud-based CRMs and project management tools. So what they did instead, and they're a much smaller company, is they went out into the world and picked a fight with the idea that you can throw people and hours at business problems. So the owner of the company, the founder, wrote a book called Rework that says very little about his product, but it basically says, fire your workaholics. If someone is a workaholic, uh, that means they're not efficient enough. Um, Simplicity is very important. If you have a product that has 20 features, pare it down to five. And if that doesn't help, if there are certain people that doesn't appeal to, great, turn them away. And so it was this sort of anti-hustle culture manifesto. Why was that good for them? Because their product is notable for being extremely simple. It only does a few things. So if a client says to them, add this functionality, they'll say, no, go to Salesforce. But simplicity in a project management tool is really useful because some of these tools are so complex that it's easier to do it on pad and paper. So they basically picked a fight with the dominant narrative in the business world and as a result was able to build a very strong brand around Basecamp where, you know, Salesforce people use because it's the best tool. People use Basecamp. They wear T-shirts with Basecamp. People have like a diehard attachment to Basecamp. So so that's one example. And then another example is everyone's favorite brand, which is uh, Apple in the Steve Jobs era. If you think about how they relaunched their brand, it was largely through those commercials with uh, Mac versus PC, where they had Justin Long as the Mac and John Hodgman as the PC. And one was nerdy, business-like, had a nice, a big gut hanging over his shirt with a tie. And then the other guy was hip and cool. And the, the implication was you can either choose to be an artsy, cool, hip, guy, or you can be a standard cubicle, do things the regular way guy. And one was Apple and one was PC. And in reality, Apple is every bit as much of a behemoth corporation as Dell, if not more so, but people don't perceive them that way. Brilliant examples. Michael, although, you know, in branding, we the whole attempt is take up an idea, stand for an idea, for a philosophy. Still, it, it, it takes a lot to consistently go for an idea and, and try and own it and protect it and not uh, let it erode uh, you know, from others uh, uh, taking bites from it. But then along with this, you say, make war, not love. And that is so powerful. Uh, I want to know what is it about us human beings that it sticks better in the mind when somebody says, I hate this, or I don't stand for this rather than I stand for this. So it it's funny you should ask because I was very curious about the same thing. So um, I did some pretty in-depth research on this topic for the book. And because I wanted to serve my clients in the right way, because I didn't want to just go on gut, you know, I mean, just because I thought that this was true and my experience showed me that it was true. I didn't want to 
been, I could have been wrong. It could have been anecdotal evidence, right? So, so I did a bunch of research and it turns out there, there was an anthropologist named Curtis Marion who found this alcove on the coast of South Africa, which essentially for various re- reasons that would take a long time to discuss here, people are pretty certain that that's where every every person on earth today is descended from the people who lived in this alcove. So there was this near extinction event on the savanna in Africa from a climate change event. And almost every homo sapiens died, except for a small group. So we almost went extinct, you know, a hundred thousand years ago or what have you. And this small group of homo sapiens, Africans went to this area on the coast, very small group. And um, what happened was they found a place where there was a lot of shellfish. You know, they found the remains of these shells, fossilized remains. And um, it was much easier than hunting and gathering. So, you know, there were just all these shellfish. You could just dip your hand into the pool and get them. Very high calorie for low investment. So the only thing keeping people from getting this shellfish was other people, right? Now, these people were all genetically similar. But the hypothesis, and it's backed by a lot of evidence, is that these people probably split into different tribes, right? Because there was only so much shellfish. And what made them able, the the people who were the best at getting this food were able to cooperate with people that they perceived to be like them and drive out the people they perceived not to be like them. And perceived is an extremely important part because they were all genetically the same, but they came up obviously with these designations, they formed groups. So they would learn to hate the people outside of them. So people who had that genetic hatred for others and the genetic propensity to cooperate with people like them are our ancestors, right? Because if you put a bunch of monkeys on an airplane, a bunch of chimpanzees who were very closely related to, and we told them everybody sit in rows and don't make any noise for three hours, they would tear holes in the side of the plane. Only humans are able to do that. So we can be very, very, very cooperative, but we're the only, but we're also able to, you know, there, there's a group that parts their hair this way instead of this way, right? I mean, skin color is a completely arbitrary designation. Some people have red hair. You know, the Romans used to hate people with red hair. They thought they were Germanic barbarians, right? Now we don't even care about that, especially in the United States, you know, black, red. So all of this to say, this propensity of human beings causes a lot of history's worst episodes to happen, right? I mean, racism, genocide, this and that, but you can channel it positively. You you can channel it you can hate a terrible message. You can hate a hateful ideology. You can hate the way things are. You can right and and um, but believing that people are going to be as passionate about what they're for, I think that's where a lot of branding people go wrong. They they sit there and they say, oh, you know, we came up with this really cool logo for our syrup, and it's really cute looking and great, and it's hip. And so we're going to get people to be for it. And then they get confused about why people don't really care as much as they'd like about their logo. But someone like Steve Jobs understood that if you can get people to think of themselves as not being a starchy cubicle person, that goes a lot farther, right? Absolutely. And and when Dove does 
uh, takes a stand against how women are being projected. Yeah, great, great example. You know, th- then it becomes a powerful force because you are defining what you stand for. And you're perhaps sticking your neck out uh, with more spine when you say, I am not for this. I am for this, but yes, this is my boundary. Uh, that's beautiful. And also, I think there's something heroic also there, isn't it, Michael? It there's can something, be, yeah. yeah. You're fighting against something yeah. and, and that kind of invites people to join you uh, and, and you know channelizes a lot of energy. So I look at the political situation in the U.S. right now, which is which is kind of troubled. And people will talk a lot in terms of what they're for. But really, they're not. There's no way that a Democrat or a Republican can be for a hundred percent of the things of their platform. You know, they're someone is um whatever, you know, list the thing. They're against high taxes, they're for guns, um, they're anti-abortion, you know, but these things have nothing to do with one another. But you know what it really is? What it really is is they hate the other side, and as a result, their team says that in order to be one of our team, you have to be for every single one of this checklist. And to prove that I hate the other side, that's who I'm going to be. And if you talk to them about it, they don't even know. They'll give you a reason that everything on that checklist is completely rational. But if you were to really dig down into the psychology, that doesn't make any sense. It's really that they're trying to show that they're not a Republican or not a Democrat. And And that's challenging, but it's true. Yeah, so there's a stronger emotion as well underlying hate uh, or what you are against. And, and like, you, like you started with this whole thing of uh, hype is about creating a certain amount of emotion. So, you know, it kind of works strongly. Uh, yeah, I think as- that old marketing uh, saying that people decide emotionally and then justify logically is really true. No one wants to think of themselves as a seething emotional animal who has no logic behind their decisions. Yeah. And, and that true. includes me. It includes me. Yes. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean. Yeah. 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 The other day, a colleague was saying that, you know, my kid does this, they'll, they'll do something and then decide how to talk about it to me, how to sell it to me. I said, we all do it. You know, yeah. we all take right. decisions. We all do it. Yeah. And, and then figure out. So great. We have kids at heart. Nothing wrong. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes think everyone is that, you know, we mature, obviously, but we, we a lot of us are kids who just figured out how to act like adults. You know, I mean, we, we've been kicked in the backside a bunch of times. We've been toughened up. But I mean, I don't think that we're any more wise than than children are half the time. Yeah, I don't want to be. Too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, Michael. So prayers, spells, and symbols, one of the strategies that you've mentioned, uh, it's, it seems very exotic. How does this uh, function for brands or marketing? Yeah, the reason that I used that phrase, I mean, you're referring to the title of a chapter and it's a hype strategy. And the reason I use that phrase is to sort of make clear that all of the sophistication we think we have about logos and slogans and all of this stuff is nothing new. It's the same thing that, that you know, soothsayers were doing and priests were doing and, and shaman were doing thousands of years ago. 
you know, those people, those religious leaders, those medicine artists, you know, whatever you want to call them, those soothsayers and oracles. Myth makers, yeah. Myth makers. They all understood that if that certain people respond to certain types of patterns, certain types of sound patterns, certain types of visual patterns, and they respond above all to repetition. So, um, and, and it almost doesn't matter what you're saying. So th- this is a story that my editor very wisely taught, told me to cut from the book. And I think it was wise because it's almost a little too controversial, but it's a story that really shows you how we are as human beings. So there was this, um, German man in in the twenties, uh, Ernst Hanfengel. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. But he uh, was an exchange student in uh, the United States in um, in at Harvard. And at that time, you know, there was no TV and all of that, so people didn't know as much about other people's cultures. So when he was there, he discovered the culture of football, American football games, and he got interested in it. He played the organ, so he would play the organ at football games. And he would see the Harvard uh, kids going, fight, Harvard, fight, fight. And at that time, Harvard people, Ivy League people were very, you know, they wore Ivy League clothing, bow ties, this. They were very sophisticated. But they would lose their minds. They would go crazy, you know. And um, one thing led to another. He came back to Germany and he became radicalized. He, he was one of the early members of the Nazi party when there were only like 100 members. And so he had Hitler's ear. And um, as the party began to grow... This guy, Ernst Hanfengel, you know, Hitler was saying, you know, we need something that the talks are going over very well, but we need something to really coalesce people. And this guy basically said to Adolf Hitler, you know, this is interesting. When I was at Harvard, um, they would play football and people go fight Harvard, fight Harvard, fight, fight, fight. And Hitler got very excited. He said, yeah, we'll do something like that. And that's how they came up with Sieg Heil, Heil Hitler, Sieg Heil, Heil Hitler. And you see these crowds doing that in unison. It doesn't look that different from people who go to football games and paint themselves in blue and yellow and cheer at the same time, or people at a Grateful Dead concert, losing their minds, chanting something in the audience, right? So I think it's just worth noting as children, we all needed to learn language and the and learning language is very hard. And we've been programmed to really respond well to repetitive patterns, to respond well to things like rhymes and alliteration, only because it, that makes it easier to go through all those random sounds and and chop them up. Um, We respond really well to certain color schemes. Like we respond well to simple color patterns. If you, you know, um, there's examples that I talk about both to clients and in the books of people creating really simple versions of complex artwork and pasting it all over, over and over, and people become obsessed with it. So when you're thinking about logos and slogans, don't, don't intellectualize it so much. It's really important to think, whatever this thing is, how do you make it something that will stick in people's minds and something, and then figure out a system that allows for the relentless repetition, especially group repetition of that thing. I mean, go to an Amway rally, right? They, they chant these positive thinking slogans over and over and over, and the crowd gets crazy and they just buy tons of inventory. Um, the Apple logo. It's better now than it was in the beginning because it's very simplified. It's the only logo people that liberal people put on their bumpers, you know, they would never put an Exxon logo logo on the back of their car or, you know, right. Or General Mills. So, um, 
yeah, I, I use that term not because it's anything mystical, but because this stuff has been around forever. But we're a capitalist society. So now we frame it as brands and slogans instead of prayers and symbols. But it's all the same. Yeah. So the, the musical signatures and uh, this rituals being created with some chance, like uh, you were just talking about how Horlicks did this apang, japang, something, you know, very fun because they were coming up with a variant for juniors and all That's this time they had been family. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, just something fun. It didn't mean anything. But it's or Buddhist fun. chanting, right? I mean, they have you pick a mantra, Om. I mean, that doesn't mean very much. I mean, you know, I mean, in America, people who don't speak Sanskrit definitely don't know what it means. But if you chant it over and over and over again, you it actually puts you in a trance, right? I mean, we are really wired for that. Yeah, and music, I, I think uh, all, all the signature music, the way yeah. we use it, I mean, it, it's it's like like, I mean, yeah, we can say it's archetypal and it's, you know, if you choose it carefully, it's creating a certain impact uh, designed for that. But still, I mean, it's it's us humans at the basic limbic system responding to sound. Some, sometimes I think about these things that we take for granted, like music, and I, I try to look at it as if you were an alien. It's basically just repetitive sounds that's somehow different than talking and it's at a certain frequency. So it's not noise, but it's just sounds that repeat and it can lead people to commit violence. It can lead people to fall in love. It can make people cry. The same with dancing. It's this just repetitive, like, Hey, we're all going to stand in a room for four hours and move back and forth, you know, repetitively. There's something about that rhythm and that repetition that like, to your point, that really, really moves us as people and almost puts us in a trance. So uh, how marketing is not hype and hype is not marketing and hype perhaps is one part of marketing. How, how would you talk about this? It seems to me, and you can tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me that words often change meaning and lose their intensity over time. So marketing I'm not sure what it means anymore. I think when marketing started, what it meant was bringing things to market. It, it was everything that happened before a sale. It was getting people to know your stuff well enough that they would give you money, right? I mean, branding originally meant when you owned cows in a field, you would brand them on the backside to show that it was yours. So branding meant that's my brand, you know, right? So, um, Unfortunately, I meet a lot of quote unquote professional marketers now. There are a lot of great ones, but who I don't really know that what they do and they don't know what they do. So I'll, I'll talk to them about what they do. Well, I'm an Instagram expert of engagement. Da, 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 da. And then I'll look into does your stuff drive sales? Does your stuff make more money for your clients? And, and it's almost like a lot of like talk. And what I found is that in the modern world, uh, what marketing has come to mean for a lot of people, not everybody, is I know how to push the buttons on the right technology, the right buttons on the right technology. I mean, you'll see marketers who they're awesome at setting up sales funnels. They're awesome at going into the back end of, of code and optimizing it for search engine optimization. But when you actually dig into why they're doing that, well, because that's what's done. So 
I, I think marketing should be what hype is. I mean, marketing should be getting people really emotional so that they'll make a buying decision. But um, we can talk about this and I'm willing to be proven wrong. But a lot of the people that I've talked to don't really even, that's the 19th thing that they'll tell you. They'll, they'll tell you how good they are with HubSpot and how they're HubSpot certified. But HubSpot for what? So I, I feel like hype takes it back to basics. It just basically says, you know, it's what marketing should be. It's the idea that we're trying to get people emotional so that they'll take a certain action. And the reason that I don't use a lot of traditional marketers in my explanations is that I've often found that the best marketers aren't marketers, right? So you'll see these people who are VPs of marketing, and some of them are great, right? But some of them are just picking the right agencies and getting the right website. But you'll see a manager of a rapper who doesn't think of themselves as a real marketer or someone doing an indie film like the Blair Witch Project. And they'll get millions of people to pay attention with a $20 budget. And it's like, how did you do that? And they'll say, oh, you know, I hyped it up. So I just, I'm trying to shake people up. Like if you're a professional marketer and if that's what you do for a living, look in the mirror and be honest and say, am I just really good at marketing technology and in filling out spreadsheets and in setting up sales funnels? Or do I know how to get people worked up enough that they'll take whatever action I want them to take, which in business is usually paying for something. And if not, learn from the people who are good at doing it. And they're not always your colleagues. In fact, a lot of times they're not your colleagues. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you were talking, I was wondering, uh, Michael, that this whole thing about, you know, can it go viral? Let's create a lot of buzz. It's at the end of the day, creating hype. And the what is underlying in my, I mean, I, I don't know, I would like to know what you think. And underlying is that you have, a, have your pulse on uh, the larger consciousness around, you know, yeah. what's you know, what, what's, what will connect, you know, like when we say, look at the popular culture and, and use that. I mean, I think uh, stand-up comedians have such a great idea yeah. of, yeah. of uh, you know, like you were talking about artists because they are in touch. They are, they are in the now they're present, they're alive to what's happening. And, and, and they know what, what will create that kind of emotion plus attention that will move people to action. Uh, perhaps. And that is marketing. I mean, isn't it? It should be. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> agree more. I, I look at someone like Tim Ferriss, right? So there, there are thousands of business book writers out there and they do fine. You know, most of the business books out there essentially help people drive clients and, and, and give credibility. But Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work week and it was a phenomenon. I mean, not only did it sell millions of books, it, it, it created spin-offs it it was the platform from which he he started his extremely successful podcast i mean all all of these things so you have to ask yourself was it only because it was a good book well that was part of it but there's a lot of good books but that title the 4 hour work week what he did was as you're calling it having your pulse on the times he 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 identified a void he saw the zeitgeist right like the, the what you're calling the published consciousness he basically said all of these people out there are working in these middle management jobs where they're asked to spend 50, 60, 70 hours a week. They don't always know what their jobs are, right? Like you're a director of solution development, da-da-da, 
and you're working all these hours, working on spreadsheets and decks, and half the time you don't even feel like you're really contributing. You know, um, you're in, you're, you're tethered to your desk. You have to be in at a certain time, and this was before the pandemic, well before the pandemic, but in at a certain time, leave at a certain time. They're very uninspiring things, and so that was a void. People were feel he sensed feeling this dissatisfaction, and he said, "Listen, why do you have to live like that?" We have technology now, we have outsourcers, we have many ways, you know, don't work for retirement, work for now. Don't be tethered to a cubicle, work from, you know, Thailand. And it just hit a nerve because he understood, he understood before people understood how dissatisfied they were. Because if you talk to those people, they probably would have said, oh, it's all right, it's working for a living, that's fine, you know. Yeah. But he got it before they got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's his brilliance, I think, because how he positions his podcast as well you know this whole yeah. lifestyle engineering and right this whole uh, because people have that uh, dissatisfaction with with the uh, urban city living and uh, that whole yearning that that is there somewhere deep down which became very prominent in the covid times but look when he started uh, this whole thing of how you can like algorithms for happiness and you know like this whole uh, new jargon that he's brought uh, to life and living. But, but, you know, I don't think his book or message would have worked in 1954. That's what I mean. So in other yes. words, in the 50s, you had a job. And if you had that job, your life could be pretty good. You worked on a factory line, but they paid, you know, they, they paid you a pension. They paid you a living that only one person had to work. And all of those people, especially the men, had just been through the war. They wanted security. They didn't want to be yep. thrown. They had just been through the fire. You know, they wanted that world. They wanted the suburban thing. So if he had come out and said, oh, you know, you can only work four hours a week, those people would have said, why the heck would I want that? You know, yeah. like that sounds horrible. I want a job with a pension and not to and know exactly what I'm going to do every day because the last years before that were hell on earth. So it's not enough to just say, oh, people are always dissatisfied with their jobs. That's kind of true. It's a function of like what what form is that dissatisfaction taking at this moment in history? Absolutely. And, and I guess, uh, like you mentioned, Oprah and Kim Kardashian and all those people who have uh, created the success gurus, life coaches, you know, cult leaders yeah. who've, who've started a movement of their own. Like, I mean, it's interesting that Tim Ferriss is also called Oprah of audio. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. They call him that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this whole thing uh, that you've talked about, that they take you to a transcendental state. So you, you buy their product, you know. So that's one of the strategies in the 12 strategies. Could you talk a little bit more about this? Because definitely marketing wants to do this, you know, like create this theater and drama. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what people call that, it's another way of saying storytelling, but it's a little bit different. Like storytelling has become this really popular thing in marketing, but I think people get it wrong. Right. So they'll tell, they'll be like, Oh, storytelling. So they'll have a bleach, right? Like Clorox. And they'll be like, what's the story of Clorox? And no one really cares what the story of Clorox is. They care about their own story. They care about being part of something bigger. So the reason I use theater and drama um, as something that's important, I, I use it twofold. So in certain cases, it really is um, literal. So um, Amway 
arguably their products are just fine, right? I mean, this is a company that's, um, they are big enough that they have a sports arena named after them. They are a massive, I believe, multi-billion dollar company. And I don't know many people outside of Michigan who know their products. They, you know, the products aren't called Amway, right? So what they're selling is not their products. They're selling people. So what happens is they get thousands, if not millions of people, millions, I guess, to become Amway distributors to buy a bunch of inventory and sell it to all their friends and family. So how do they do that? Well, they're not doing it on the brand of the products because we don't know the brand of the products. They're not, and the products are probably fine, but it's like soap and stuff. I mean, how different can it be? So they're not doing it on that and they're not doing it on, um, yeah, the quality of the products that's neither here nor there. They use theater and drama to get all of these people hyped up. So they, they bring them into these big halls and they bombard them with loud music and uh, lights. And they have these charismatic salespeople who are the biggest salespeople in the country up on stage. And they treat them like protagonists in this grand story. And the company's called Amway, which is American way. So the founders are very, um, they have this belief that, you know, capitalism will solve all the problems, all the ills of the world. So it's this idea that if you are supporting Amway, you're supporting America and the American way and the, the, this and that. Um, they chant, ain't it great, ain't it great, ain't it great, ain't it great. So it's it's theater on that level. It's like going to a gladiator show or a rock concert or, or whatever. And people are susceptible. It breaks down your resistance. It gets you very excited. But there's another way to talk about drama. I mean, in, in ancient Greece, they invented um, what we think of as theater. I mean, there were other theater, like like co-theater in Japan. But like what we think of as theater was invented in, in Athens. And there was no light. There was no sound. It was an outdoor arena, you know, a, a, a place that had good acoustics, natural acoustics. And they wore masks, but they were very simple masks. But it was drama and theater in terms of like tension and release. You know, there would be a hero who was put in a very tense situation and you would watch, you know, you, the crowd would gain catharsis as more and more stuff was piled on them and they used their wits to get out of it. And in a tragedy, it would all fall apart at the end. And in a comedy, everyone would get married and everything would be beautiful at the end. And, um, you know, if you don't have the lights and the color and the sound, think about tension and release. Think about drama, right? I mean, um, the, the protagonist in the story shouldn't be you or your product. It should be them. Like, like you know, they're, they're Luke Skywalker and your product is the lightsaber, right? And, and how are you going to make them feel like bigger like some they're part of something bigger than themselves part of a grand drama that that they have a happy ending waiting for them if they fight through these obstacles because just saying here's why my product is awesome and let me work you through the benefits that's not going to do it absolutely and this whole sensory marketing and experiential marketing is trying to emulate that uh, but but you know, but this is this is very, very telling that how these leaders use it, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you'd never want to look at them like that. But, you know, there is a conscious strategy because you want to feel that they're so genuine um, in, in what they're bringing out there. But there's this whole personal branding that you've talked about uh, within that space 
well, I want to chime in. I don't mean to interrupt, but I think no. some people do it consciously and some people don't. I think there are leaders who are just naturals. You know, I don't think that Donald Trump gets up there and he's like, I've done a scientific study of the, uh, you know, psychology of people. I just think he gets how to manipulate large numbers of people and all always have. Um, same with maybe Tony Robbins. But then I think there are companies like Amway that after the first five years probably do study it because it's such a large company. So I think um, the trick is to, as a professional marketer or brander or, or business person or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter whether they did it on purpose or didn't do it on purpose. It's looking at what are the commonalities because there are commonalities, Right. And if you can find those commonalities and see what works in different contexts time and again, you can then use those strategies, but hopefully do it in an ethical way. Do it in a way that you don't have to deceive people and you don't have to make people worse off than you found them, right? Yeah. Um, which is doable. I've done it. I mean, I, that's what we do. Yeah. And not sell them what they don't need. A hundred percent. Not, not, yeah. I mean, that, I'm, I really think that that's, not sell them what they don't need, but I mean, it's one thing to sell someone a pet rock. No one needs a pet rock, right? But it's okay. But if you're selling things to people that actively hurt them, that makes them spend money that they don't have for something that they can't use, I think that's really unethical and really yeah. makes the world a worse place. Yeah. yeah, because in the marketing terms, we always talk about wants and needs. So, you know, right. it's a little <laughs> that. So, uh, uh, Michael, you've, you've studied so many cult leaders and propagandists and mischief makers and boundary breakers. Do you think, so there are commonalities. Do you think they have their unique edge factors also? Like I'm calling it edge factors and like a hype factor, which and which have been your favorite? Were you surprised that they are your favorite? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the X factor, the X factor thing is interesting, because, as I said before, like, I think there are some people who just have a knack at this stuff, like they didn't study it, but they just have a knack for this stuff. But I also think there are people who, who do study it, like Edward Bernays, who we can talk about, or, or you can read about in the book. But I also think there are people who, they turn their weaknesses into strengths. Like no one would say that Andy Warhol is a particularly charismatic person on the surface. I mean, he's ridiculously quiet or was ridiculously quiet, ridiculously sort of weird. Um, but he turned all of those weaknesses into parts of his charisma. I think some people like that are just so ambitious that they figure out a way to make things work for them. But I'll tell you, I was not natural at this. You know, I mean, I um, I was natural at like being mischievous. I mean, we we uh, you mentioned before we were talking about the band I was in, and I was good at like getting people to notice our band and things like that. But I wasn't a natural salesman. I was really bad at what you would call marketing. I mean, I started a business and almost ran it into the ground. But I'm a good student. So I started to study this and, and I almost put it as an intellectual challenge to myself and said, it, do you have to have this X factor? Do you have to have this natural ability or can you learn it? Can you actually dissect what other people have done and turn it into a system? And yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess what a lot of people would call successful. And, and I did that through dissecting these strategies and making it work for me. I mean, Thomas Edison, you know, was not charismatic at all. He he hated people. He was partially deaf. 
And, and I only bring that up because it made it hard for him to communicate with people. Uh, he was cantankerous. He would have rather been in his lab. So what he did is he created this vision of, a, of an inventor who was so dedicated that he worked 24-7. So investor, he would always have the press around. So investors would show up and he would have an assistant say, Mr. Edison can't talk now because he's busy on his latest invention. He had a punch clock that usually employees punch in, but he would punch it in so that he could report on the press how many hours. And it wasn't because he had to work that many hours to succeed. It was just a great narrative that this guy is working hard to change the world, working like a dog. But it was also convenient because he wasn't he wasn't Tony Robbins. He didn't have a big voice. He didn't pat you on the back. He was like a gravelly, cantankerous guy, which could have really hurt him. But he turned it into his legend. And you can do that. So what I tell clients is write down the, all of those things that you're the most insecure about that you think are your worst traits, and then find a way to reframe it as your as something really cool. And usually that's the most unique stuff about you. Every entrepreneur is hardworking, big deal. But what if you have this weird thing about you that you've always tried to bury, but actually that's the thing that makes you interesting to everybody? Absolutely. Turn your weakness into a strength. I think there's so many brands who've uh, done a great job. And Heinz came to my mind, Heinz Ketchup, because it was very thick. I said, good things come to those who wait. I love that. That's a wonderful <laughs> example. Yeah, and there was yeah. that rental car company that said, we're number, we're number two, so we you work harder. harder. I think it was Avis, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I love that so, Heinz example. I'm going to use that. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are also <laughs> going to make war. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Scary. I'm scared. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Mother's best advice. Always take time to read, even if it's fiction. Alternate profession could have been. Oh, gosh. Um, novelist. Oh, what would you do on Mars for fun? You know that game where you um, try to um, hold your breath because it makes you lighten the head? That might work. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. As per your best friend, your most often used phrase. You know, and I got to work on that. It's kind of my filler word. Okay. One thing no one knows about you. I don't know if there's anything no one knows about me, anything that I'd want to admit, but um, something that few people know about me is that, um, wow, this is a hard one. I'm an open book. I guess something that few people know about me is that I once dressed up, I went on a cruise, a carnival cruise with my parents. This was humiliating. And these two other guys, they had this masquerade thing in front of the whole cruise. And they told me to dress up like a girl they were going to. So I was the only one who dressed up like a girl. And I was all by myself on stage with like the fake boobs and everything. It's really, it's really humiliating. Yeah. Oh, thank you for they sharing. Show, they showed up just wearing normal stuff. And, and you know, it's only me. So oh. yeah, that was, that was bad. Oh, okay. Okay. No, yeah. no. <laughs> thank you. <Virginia. laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. A book you'd like to gift to all your friends. I just read a book that I think a lot of people 
in business should read, even though it's a novel, especially creative businesses. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And it's about two childhood friends who reconnect and, and, and start a video game company. And it's really a wonderful depiction of what the creative life, especially a creative business, is really like. I mean, it's a novel and it's really heartfelt and it brought me like kind of choked me up, which is really strange for me. But um, yeah, I, I, I would really give that to anyone okay. trying to do something creative. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite childhood memory? Favorite childhood memory. I used to really like going to my grandparents. Uh, my mom's parents had a, uh, um, they lived in a row home in Philadelphia. I don't know if you know what they are, but it's like a small kind of conjoined house. And they had this basement full of junk, but I thought it was like the most wondrous place in the world. They had all kinds of old books and an animal skull on the thing and like old canes and just all. And I used to spend like hours wandering through this place and I, I loved it. Yeah. The mystery of it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. This reminds me of Stranger Things. Okay. What's your greatest joy, Michael? This is really cheesy and typical, but I have a daughter. I have a almost 12-year-old daughter. I would have to say, thank her. So it's a wrap-up now, Michael. Uh, I'd request you to share any online addresses, emails, uh, if you want to say anything about your book. And the links will be available uh, in the show notes as well. Sure. I, I'll give you two so that it doesn't get too complicated. I don't want to give five, you know. But um, the first thing is if, if you really want to know uh, how my mind works and the kind of stuff I am and we as a company do, it really I really put everything into that book. And if, if, um, if you just use all the stuff and never hire me, awesome. You know, that, that means that uh, you, you'll tell people about the book. So it's called The Hype Hand Book. Um, and uh, just go to Amazon. You know, that's the easiest way. Or your bookstore, if, if they carry it, that's even better. Uh, my company is called microfamemedia.com. So M-I-C-R-O-F-A-M-E. That's the company and .com. And if you want to know more just about kind of the work we do, it's all, it's all basic. I do a lot of podcast interviews and they run the gamut. You know, uh, some hosts are, are great and some hosts are um, just sort of read a list of questions and they all have their value. Um, I have to say that this interview fascinated me. You know, I, I, I found this conversation extremely open hearted and warm, and we explored all kinds of areas that I don't think I would have normally explored. And I hope that even a fraction of that came across to the audience. So please uh, like, share and subscribe. It, I had a wonderful time and I hope you did, too. Of course, Michael, thank you so much. It was it was great.